This is an excerpt from Long Walk to Freedom by Nelson Mandela. It was during those long and lonely years that my hunger for the freedom of my own people became a hunger for the freedom of all people. The oppressor must be liberated just as surely as the oppressed. One who takes away another's freedom is a prisoner of hatred, looked behind the bars of prejudice and narrow-mindedness. I am not truly free if I am taking away someone else's freedom, just as surely as I am not free when my freedom is taken from me. The oppressed and the oppressor are alike robbed of their humanity. The oppressed and the oppressor alike are robbed of their humanity. Nelson Mandela says, and both are imprisoned. But what are these bars that Mandela speaks of? As a youth, I thought the bars were somewhere outside of myself, built by specific people who were seeking to oppress an unfortunate few. And valuing justice, my mission in my early years was to go undo the oppression out there. I was a good daughter of a social worker. And it is part of my mission. But in my 20s, I discovered just how deep those bars run, how intimate they are. I grew up hearing that my great-great-great-great-grandmother was a member of the Cherokee Nation, among the last to be expelled in the final expulsion in the Eastern Band of Cherokees in the Trail of Tears. She was assimilated rather than uh, traveling on that desperate journey. So I grew up hearing about her, but growing up white, I was taught that Sarah was this interesting part of our very distant past. It never occurred to me that there was any connection between me and her over seven generations. And I didn't care about appearances if there was any resemblance, because I was a self-made feminist from my earliest memories. You should know. When I was a child, my cousins would, my girl cousins would hoard the pink jelly beans because they were the girl colors, and I would refuse to touch a green, I mean a pink jelly bean, because I didn't have to like pink. Girls didn't have to like pink, although I secretly loved pink jelly beans. <laughs> they were kind of the only ones I liked, that and the purple. <sighs> but... Despite my desire to reject strict gender boxes, I grew up in, in Mississippi, okay? Despite, despite my desire to reject strict gender roles and my refusal to obsess over feminine appearance, somewhere along the way, I internalized an oppressive disdain for my even remotely, remotely native features. I remember a friend in middle school told me to emphasize my eyes in makeup because, unfortunately, I had an exotic mouth and cheeks. I thought that was silly. I didn't really care about appearances and what did all that mean anyway. But somewhere along the way, I must have internalized this message or the message on the billboards and magazines about what beauty was because I didn't embody that. I didn't look like those pictures. And I realized one day 
that I had been ignoring this part of my face, like not paying attention to it, kind of slightly dis disliking it. Not something I really thought about. But it, I realized what was going on in my 20s. The family got a hold of some old photos from my grandmother. They'd been stored away for ages, and when she was entering a home for dementia, we got a hold of these pictures, and we saw Sarah, my great-great-great-great-grandmother. And when I looked at her face, I instantly recognized, oh, I, that, I look like that. It's really faint, but as soon as I noticed some resemblance with her, I realized that I had internalized an oppressor's disdain for indigenous features, a society that had tried to erase her in every way. And I let go of any feelings of dislike or ignoring. I smiled because a Part of her smile survived. So, where are the bars that Mandela talks about? The oppressed and the oppressor alike are robbed of their humanity. But which was I, the oppressed or the oppressor? Nelson Mandela says that we are all imprisoned. And there I was, a young white woman with many marks of privilege, yet still with the bars of this prison buried so deep inside. I was privilege and oppression living in one body. We are all privilege and oppression living in one body, in one family, in one community, in one nation. Privilege and oppression are always part of the same body. And there's more to the race story in my family. My parents and I did a 23andMe test for fun. It's this genetic test where you spit in a tube and then mail it off, and they tell you some stuff about your genetics, about health, and where your ancestors likely were 500 years ago. By the way, I discovered that it's in my genes why I love coffee so much. So why fight it? <laughs> but more important, where we expected to find our ancestor Sarah from the Cherokee Nation popping up in the gene data around seven generations back, we found ancestors from West Africa and Nigeria specifically, and not as far back, maybe only five generations back. These were nearer ancestors than Sarah, only the family never talked about them. Or perhaps... They avoided talking about them, and then a generation turned over into another, and it was forgotten. Maybe they were afraid to admit a slaveholding ancestor. Maybe they were afraid of the one-drop rule in Jim Crow South that would have marked them as not white enough. But either way, my internalized rejection, my internalized rejection of Sarah, was like my family's rejection of my cousins. And here's the key to the bait that I do not want us to take. My family made a choice to reject part of itself in order to take a privilege. But those privileges were assigned to whiteness, 
as tokens designed to keep white people and black people from organizing together against labor abuses and other oppressions from landed elites and political powers. The bait of white privilege stabilized a whole population. It was hard to resist, especially since the alternative to whiteness could mean sharecrop-style servitude, abuse, and murder. So I don't judge my ancestors for taking the bait, but let us not take the bait now. What privilege runs through your life, your family, that divides you from your kin, from your neighbors? When you talk to somebody who doesn't have a privilege that you may have, are you able to connect on a deeply human level, or is that privilege somehow a wedge that lives between you, hurting you, alienating you from the lived experience of your neighbor? It's not your fault if you have privilege or don't. It is our choice what we do with it. Here's one way to sniff out this privilege bait. Anytime you hear a message like this, if this excluded group over here gets more help or resources, then you will get less of your special resources. That is a privilege oppression bait. Another one sounds like this. If you share some of your privileges, then this group over here will take advantage of you. And like the rainbow fish feared, you'll lose your specialness. Privilege oppression bait. The tantalizing bait of privilege is nothing but a facade for exploitation. While this is a facade and a problem that great thinkers like Nelson Mandela and others have spoken about for millennia, one such thinker is the Dominican priest and theologian Gustavo Gutierrez. He famously described this shared suffering of privilege and oppression in his classic text, A Theology of Liberation. Here in this section, he's talking about Paul's letter to the Galatians from the Christian scripture. The biblical message, which presents the work of Christ as liberation, provides this framework, he says. For freedom Christ has set us free. He refers here, Paul does, to liberation from sin insofar as it represents a selfish turning in upon itself. To sin is to refuse to love one's neighbor and therefore God. Sin is a breach of friendship. And it is, according to Guterres' reading of the Bible, the ultimate cause of poverty, injustice, and oppression in which we live. Here Gutierrez calls out the sin that emerges from taking the bait of privilege. Taking the bait of privilege means accepting oppression and the ultimate loss of liberation for everyone. Gutierrez later references Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which you've heard me reference before. I want to offer you these words from Bonhoeffer and also acknowledge the gendered language indicative of his time. In the language of the Bible, writes Bonhoeffer, freedom is not something man has for himself, but something he has for others. It is not a possession. It is not a presence or an object, but a relationship and nothing else. Freedom is a relationship and nothing else. Being free means being free for another because the other has bound me to him only in relationship with an other. Am I free?
For Bonhoeffer, the privileged will never be free because they cannot truly live for the other. This is what Gutierrez and Bonhoeffer offer us, though. Liberation for the oppressed from their exploitation and marginalization, and liberation for the privileged. Liberation from their alienation and arrogance. To find this freedom, we must stop taking the bait. Like the one-drop rules and token privilege of being white that split my family. And one must take great care, because there is a great deal of bait out there. The bait has many forms, and here is one. If you have a job, or you're wealthy, you don't, you probably have some good basic health care. But you're aware that many people do not. The bait of privilege is dangled before you, and it looks like this. If everyone has access to health care, then your special health care quality will go away. There are so many problems with this bait. First of all, would we really have our neighbors suffer? Is this really what we want? And even if our heart has become so hardened, do we not have basic public health knowledge understanding? If poor people cannot access health care, then infectious diseases will spread and become stronger, and ultimately everybody's health is threatened. But still, that is a self-inward-seeking concern. And I reject the bait on the principle that I don't want my health care to have to keep other people out. Here's another privilege bait, and it sounds like this. If your family's been here for a few generations, especially if they came from a Western European country, then they belong here. And you own the resources here. And by the way, there are limited resources. So if somebody is coming from a Central or South American country specifically, then they are going to take your resources and there won't be enough to go around. This is a bait. The idea that there are limited jobs and resources, so sharing with immigrants and recipes refugees will take away from you. This anti-immigrant rhetoric being heaped upon us is using fear of losing our privilege in order to bait, to divide us from our neighbors, from Central and South America especially, who are fleeing deadly violence and desperately seeking to feed their families. And this rhetoric is based on inflammatory drama rather than empirical fact of threat. The bait is even more flimsy than that bait in the Jim Crow South that split my family, where the threat of violence from hate groups actually made the bait more tangible. So here we are in this quagmire of privilege and oppression. Are we destined to sadly shake our heads and wish it wasn't like this? We have an opportunity. We have always had an opportunity. We have always had this wonderful and frightening opportunity to stop taking the bait. Oppression is not the opposite of privilege. Privilege and oppressed 
Privileged and oppressed are not enemies. Privilege and oppression are partners in a tragic play, and they are part of the same body, the same person, the same family, the same community. Privilege and oppression can't live without the other. Privilege occurs only in the presence of the deprivation of that same capacity in somebody else, and deprivation is oppression. For example, I only have the privilege of good health care because other people lack health care. If they didn't, it wouldn't be a privilege. It would be a right. It would be a social good. And I don't want that privilege. I want the social good. Instead, we have a system, a system of unequal privileges and deprivations that leads to the enrichment of a few elite by extracting wealth from some groups while stabilizing this unjust extraction through the enlistment of fallacious loyalty from certain groups who are bestowed token privileges in order to deceive them and ensure their participation in a system of exploitation. In the end, only power is enriched and our souls are extracted at every point along this web of broken relationships. What is the opposite of oppression if not privilege? As Gutierrez and Mandela and Bonhoeffer and Jesus tell us, the opposite of oppression and privilege is liberation. Freedom of everyone to be free of the tragic privilege and oppression play that divides us and never has to divide us. Freedom to live for our mutual benefit. This only appears impossible and naive when we have taken the bait and we believe that our well-being is dependent upon the oppression of some other group. We must not take that fundamental bait. At any moment, we can turn away from continuing this play based on privilege and the lack of it and turn towards liberation. We could, we could if we dared. We could. And what a wonderful and fearful place that would be. Is it not unsettling? And this is awe. To be tantalized with Wonder and fear and unknowing what awesome power that would be to give up privilege and to live for one another. Shifting our values and actions away from protecting privilege and toward rejecting oppression. Turning towards collective liberation. That is an awesome possibility. We can dismantle our prison by healing relationships. This is awe, with its mix of wonder and fear and the possibility of liberation for everyone. So let us all work for liberation. Not that we know how to let go of our privilege, because we are all living amidst a situation full of what Gutierrez would call sin. You cannot move away from sin in an instant, but you can move in the direction of liberation. 
there is a hymn in your order of service, and I want to invite you to open to it now, number 151. I wish I knew how. In the past, I struggled to sing this hymn. I struggled because I know this song by Billy Taylor was written from the experience of a whole group of people who were enslaved in this country. And who was I to sing it? Was it okay to sing it as someone who is white cultured? I don't have Billy Taylor's experience, but I do desperately, desperately want to be free of this prison of oppression and white privilege and racism and sexism and all of these divides that put privilege on one side and oppression on the other and keep us separate, splitting our human family. May this song have a line in it that speaks to you and your longing for liberation. I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and join me now in making this hymn the closing of our sermon. I wish I knew how.